I can say good afternoon. I pray you are well. I pray that you are strengthened. And um, again, looking forward to what life has ahead of us. I want to take my, some time now to read the scriptures. It's quite a lengthy chunk, and I want to just get reading that before I kind of sit and start to unpack um, what I believe this means. We've come to a, you know, we've been on a, um, on a short, um, what can we say, a fast jog through um, the book of Mark. And I hope that it has really helped you. I think the pace um, is somewhat helpful. Sometimes when we take the, um, the slow, um, taking in all the sights, sometimes we can, we cannot appreciate the big picture of what's going on. We kind of break, you know, uh, um, something down into small parts, and 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 so often we 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 can, we can kind of lose ourselves in the detail. But it's great that we've been able to kind of look at the general story of Jesus's life and death and resurrection in that brisk pace that we've had so far. So if you can turn with your Bibles or um, on your tablets or phones um, to Mark 15 and 16, and we will read that last, this last section of the Gospel of Mark. I'll be reading from the ESV. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. They began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the, pal the place called Golgotha, which means place of skull, of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on, the, on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that he may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sapathani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone, someone ran and filled a sponge of sour wine 
put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that it was, he saw, saw in his, this way, he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary, Madeline, and Mary, the mother of James, and the younger, James the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was de dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Madeleine and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Madeleine, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on in the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us for the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Madeleine, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe him. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into the, all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. 
And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So this is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, we are so grateful that you have, uh, as it were, seen us through such difficult times, Lord God. And again, we are thankful because we have your word beside us, Lord God, seeing us through those difficult times. And Lord, if we look forward and persevere on there, Lord God, wanting to honor you with our lives, honor you there, Lord God, for having us seen us through and seen us even through more difficult days ahead there, Lord. We thank you for your word, which is a comfort to us, like a shepherd's rod there, Lord Father, keeping us there, Lord Father, and, and being, a, you know, being not just a, that which we can lean on, but that which can also be a weapon. Lord, that can, again, forge, dear Lord God, our way forward through doubt, through those times, dear Lord God, where we will second-guess ourselves and, and think, have I really embraced the truth? Lord, you are true. Your gospel is true. That which we have read and have been studying, dear Lord God, is the truth of those who, Lord, who knew him and saw him and wanted to write a faithful account. And Lord, even as now we've, we, 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 we summarize that which we have heard and, and seen the, the complete climax of Jesus' life in, the, in, in his death and resurrection and his ascension, Lord, we pray that we can find comfort in that. Find comfort there, Lord God, and find strength. Lord, speak to us, we pray, Lord God. Again, beyond that which I say, comfort our hearts for those who need company. Rebuke those who need rebuking. Lord, instruct those, dear Lord, who need instruction. Whatever it might be that we, where we are in our lives, dear God, we know that your spirit speaks. So, Lord, again, we pray, have your way. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, the story so far, as I said, this is the last installment of the Gospel of Mark, you know, and as I said, we've, as it were, gone through at quite a pace, taking quite large chunks of scripture and then, um, as it were, summarizing them for, uh, for us and, 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 and trying to paint an overall picture because, again, there are these broad themes in the Gospel of Mark that cover certain aspects of Jesus's life and ministry. And to some extent, if we had broken this down and, and, and maybe taught this over a year, maybe we would lose those blocks. But as we kind of condense them and, 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 and bring them together, we can see these chunks and how they were supposed to work together. So the, the story begins with a voice crying in the wilderness. The gospel of repentance proclaimed by John making way for Jesus. 
We've seen the miraculous things he done in, by ways of healing and, and deliverance and teaching. And now we come to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The servant, saviour, son of God, as we've titled this series. And again, as I title this final thing, this is the presentation. Jesus, the saviour, the servant, the saviour, and the son of God. As biographies go, how does Jesus meet your expectations? Now, I know that this is more than a biography, but again, when you look at the genre, this is a biography of Jesus' life. But it's also scripture. But in the conclusion, what do you make of him? Today we find that people tend to like his teachings. In particular, the ones that encourage equality, generosity, compassion. But not so much the ones that make claims to his being the only way. And that rotten place he, he talks so much about called hell. Maybe we are not so surprised that his miracles are not really that attractive to the modern reader. Because, if we're honest, we've grown out of such fanciful storytelling. We don't mind going to the movies and watching these spectacular things, but we know it's all special effects. But to the ancient Israelites, this would have been their focal point. Wow, I, I, you know, as we hear, the Jews, we want to see someone who can do miraculous things. We may, not even, we may not be surprised that even the ancient audience had their own issues with what they could easily believe about Jesus and what they didn't believe. It can be fair to say that despite everything that the scriptures stated would be true of the Messiah, he, nonetheless, did not meet even our, theirs or our expectations. But this is not because he gives us less than we expected. In fact, he offers us more. I believe it to be true that every generation and culture has its own archetypal hero in which it measures all claimants. So there's that picture of who our current culture considers to be a hero. Again, probably comes to your mind maybe even the NHS. Those who have put themselves on the line, so to speak, with uh, taking care of our medical needs, you know, the, 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 the healer, the one who gives off themselves. Jesus, it would appear, is no different to this rule. Does Jesus meet our current expectations of a hero, of a savior, 
of what we need right now. But if you look at the Gospel of Mark, he should be the one person who gets to redefine the expectations for any generation, for any culture, for what the ultimate saviour ought to be. In so many ways, Jesus is presented to us in the gospel as overqualified for the role of our saviour. And we ourselves may be guilty of turning him away because we want a much smaller saviour. We might want a saviour who gives us food for my belly, but not for my soul. Healing for my body, but not for my heart. Teaching for my ears, but not for transforming my mind. Remember the parables? How Jesus had expected to explode into our hearts and transform our, our assumptions and our prejudices. He offers us more than what we want. And that's not Jesus' fault that he goes beyond our expectations. It's our fault because we want so little. I want to take some time to just jog through the text and kind of make some highlights. I wish we had the time in order to kind of go and, and maybe look at um, everything in detail. But again, that's not what we've been trying to do. We've been trying to look at this, in, in, as it were, in an overview format. And as such, I want to make the notes I think are going to be helpful. So in that first, few, that first section in chapter 15, in 16 to 20, we get Jesus being mocked. So after Jesus' sham trial, as you've been hearing from Denzel last week, he is now led to be crucified. This scene presents us with the irony of the soldiers mocking him. They are speaking the truth, but they do not know it. What a tragedy that the truth is treated as a joke. And the lie is treated with sincerity. It kind of reminds me of what Isaiah prophesied that, in the, you know, that there will come a point where societies become so corrupt that they will start to call good evil and evil good. When we lose that, when we lose that connection to our spiritual roots, our, our, our truths, can I, how can I put it? Our true moral grounding, when we've lost that and it's no longer found in, 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 in the triune God, our society will go haywire. And I am stunned to find ourselves in a culture where now I started to see that more true, where people are starting to call good evil and evil good.
Maybe we shall see ourselves in that. Where people find it funny to mock Christians. And are encouraged to do so. The double irony, if there is such a thing as double irony, is that even the crown of thorns they place on his head marks him as the suffering servant that scripture prophesied he would be. In a sense, this is ideal. Jesus is not the king that comes, at least in this incarnation, as the ruling lion. He comes as the lamb placed, slain from the foundations of the world. He is, he is actually the suffering king, the suffering servant, as Mark has made us so aware of. I guess that saying is true. Many a, many a true word is spoken in jest, right? In verses 21 to 32, we now come to the crucifixion. In verse 23, I, I, again, I just want to kind of point out some things here. What I think I thought was helpful. Jesus refuses the wine infusion. He, he's offered this, you know, um, wine with myrrh. And it's assumed that he refuses to drink this so as not to dull his awareness to the ordeal of being crucified. In other words, you know, you take this drink and you take this concoction to kind of, like, I mean, you can say much like what we do with morphine, right? To take away the pain so we can, we can make it a little bit easier on us. And he refuses that. As no doubt many other people would have gladly had, would have welcomed some kind of relief. From the pain. It's these little details that we might miss. That might be helpful for us. And maybe even, as I think, could be a lesson for us today. Because I believe that today we are, especially within the West, we are living in a therapeutic culture. A therapeutic culture is such that where pain and suffering is avoided like the plague. We don't want to go through anything, any kind of difficulty. Hence, one of the reasons why we can be so over-medicated. And so many people become dependent on that medication. Even addicted to it, without it being cocaine or heroin or anything like that. That people can be addicted even to painkillers. The ability to kind of, as it were, numb ourselves to the realities of our lives. Now, I don't think this is a lesson because, to some extent, as in the medieval church, many people thought this was a, a, a lesson in, in what they call asceticism, in that we should make ourselves suffering. Maybe you've seen those um, monks, or as it were, who were flagellating themselves uh, as, a, as a means of, as it were, identifying with Christ. That's not what I'm encouraging. And that obviously is not what Jesus is doing when he refuses the wine. But there is something about sharing in the suffering of the people in whom you are pastoring. 
It teaches us something about what it means to be missional. If we go on missions, there was something that, um, again, I believe it was, um, good Lord, it was Carey, maybe, one of those guys, who, who, who broke the mold of missions where rather than living in a compound and going out to the, to the masses, as it were, in, in, in China as such, they lived with the people. They lived with the people in whom they ministered to. Rather than go back to kind of like a comfortable setting and, and, and you know, and, and, as it were, condescend into their lives. That somehow it's better to kind of, as it were, get involved in the work by being with the people in whom you are with. And sharing in the way that they live their lives. I think it also has a, a maybe something even more down to earth that maybe we can all identify if we don't consider ourselves to be, as it were, missional, which we ought to. But even that whole idea of serving, coming out of my comfort zone and allowing myself to be identified with the work of the gospel, of taking that time where, yes, you could be at home, relaxing from a busy week at work. But this is important too. And so when you've got that ability to maybe put your feet up and enjoy and unwind in an evening, you actually, as it were, like Jesus, refuse the wine that will dull your senses. And say, no, I want to identify with my people. I want to go through what they would go through. Moving on. One of the most divisive questions that come from this event, that is the event of the, the death of Jesus, is that of who killed Jesus? In this section, and obviously with the other section, with the Romans soldiers taunting him, we are made aware of so many people, people, casual walkers by, who are taunting him, the priests, the scribes, even the thieves. Well, we know that one of those these are definitely deriding him. Everyone played a role in placing him on the cross. The best answer to this misleading question about who put Jesus on the cross is that we all have killed him. You know, much like the, um, the Agatha, Christie, Agatha Christie novel, Murder on the Orient Express, and for all those who haven't watched it yet, who, you know, sorry, I can't help, I'm going to spoil it for you. All the suspects are guilty. Everyone is guilty. Everybody that Paro suspects was guilty of killing this man. There is no point trying to figure out who struck the first killing blow. Because they all had an intent to kill him.
And by virtue of trying to see, well, who, who, who really had the instrumental hand in putting Jesus on the cross is pointless because that's like trying to excuse all those who later strike him with the same intent. And that's ourselves included. We have all put him on the cross. Verses 33 to 41, the actual death of Jesus. In verse 38, we see the fulfillment of Jesus' anti-temple polemic, with the, tur the, 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 the curtain in the temple being torn in half from top to bottom. Again, the top to bottom is this, is, is this way of saying that, to some extent, it's the, mirac the, the, the miracle of this, this incredibly thick curtain actually splitting from the top like an act of God and this is in a sense a visual display a visual sign that proclaims that the way to God via the temple had come to an end the place of the Holy of Holies is now exposed as it was exposed in the temple now it was exposed on the cross on Golgotha. Here is the way to salvation. Here was the only sacrifice you needed. And, the, and Christ now becomes that new temple, which was what he was doing when he was looking back at Mark 13, is that he will now build the temple again in three days, which is his body, which is us who have been raised with him to be part of that temple, as 1 Corinthians 3 reminds us. We are the temple of God. The irony also of verse 39 is that in the midst of Jew Jesus' Jewish detractors, here comes a foreign soldier who is able to see that no one else sees. He sees the events of going on. He, he sees the manner in which Jesus dies. And he says, truly, this was the Son of God. I mean, some of the commentators would have said that this would have been a remarkable statement because we, we're, we're assuming, and again, we are assuming, that this was a centurion that was no stranger to crucifixions. And as no stranger to crucifixions, he would have seen many Maybe hundreds, maybe even thousands of men strung up after the end of a battle. You would be stringing, stringing these guys up on crosses to maximize their suffering. And he would have seen many of these guys, but for some reason or another, he notices that Jesus doesn't die like everybody else. Like there was some kind of nobility in the way in which he died that he knew was unnatural. Again, it's that whole idea of that which Israel struggles to see, those who were far away, like the prodigal son, see very clearly. Who can see, actually, in my father's house, there is a better life. The better life that the older son denied himself, that there was, there was more on offer than they were prepared to take. And this centurion can see that Jesus offered them more 
that he was not merely a son of a king, but he was the son of God. One of the things that's worth noting, um, obviously excluding the mocking of Jesus by the Roman soldiers, that how often Roman soldiers are actually pictured as favorable and positive figures in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. Jesus' problem wasn't with the Romans per se, but with the Jews, who were, as it were, their more formidable enemy and opposer to him. In this section as well, of, you know, between 33 and 41 of the death of Jesus, we also see in verse 30, 40 to 41 the role of women in Jesus' life. And we see that short commentary that Mark not only introduces the women into the context, but he also mentions the fact that they've always been around him. And they had come up with him from Jerusalem, to uh, come up from him from Galilee to Jerusalem, and that they had played a prominent role. So in contrast to Luke, who obviously has, has a very, obviously, favorable role throughout his gospel of women in Jesus' life, Mark now introduces these women somewhat late. And it's not for no reason. When the courage of men has failed, the compassion of women comes to fill the void they have left. So when all the men have suddenly realized that Jesus is not going to be who they want him to be, and, and all of a sudden they realized there was no war to be fought with swords as such, they, they had to disappear. And then all of a sudden the, 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 the people that were closest around, now the women can come and surround him and bring, as it were, that woman's touch to his life. Who will take care of him as he dies? Who will take care of him and take care of his body? And the women come to the forefront. In verses 42 to 47, Jesus is now buried. It was unusual that bodies would be left. Um, it was not, it was usual, sorry, that bodies would be left on the cross until they were decomposed. That was the traditional thing. The whole idea was that, you know, as you looked around the Roman Empire, eventually you'll become a skeleton and, you know, you'll decompose on the cross. However, because of the, the particular sensitive nature, again, you know, looking back to Deuteronomy, uh, you know, curses anyone who dies on the tree. So they had a particular sensitivity and the custom that the Romans allowed where the Jews would not allow a body to stay on a cross and decompose. And they were allowed to bury them. Joseph of Arimathea, as it were, is told that he picks up his courage and he comes to ask for the body. And he goes directly to Pilate. Pilate uses a soldier to go and check whether he has died. And he is now surprised that Jesus has actually died so suddenly. Usually it would take a few days before you would actually pass away. 
the manner of crucifixion was that you died painfully, very slowly, over a very long period of time. Now, there's two ways you maybe can look at this. It could be that Jesus is scourging, um, you know, for those of us who have seen the passion of the Christ, uh, you know, we, we, we got our eyes open to how brutal a whipping like that could be. And maybe that had played a role in, in weakening his body to the point where a quick death was something to be expected. But again, even then, maybe not so, because Pilate was also aware that he was scourged, because Pilate sent him to be scourged. Or at least he knew of Herod scourging him. The other thing, which I consider probably more likely, is that Jesus actually gives up his life. He gives his life. And I think this maybe plays true to how Scripture may be telling us that he does not, he, he does not, he's not, the Romans cannot take his life, but he gives it freely. And he can also take it up freely. Now moving to chapter 16 and verse 1 to 8. The resurrection. Here we see the return of the women who are coming to take care of Jesus' body. They will be the first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. And again, what we'll find is obviously as the, the rest of this passage kind of plays out, is that the women would be the least desirable witnesses that you needed. But yet, that's how the gospel has played it, that in this last part, the women would play a key role in witnessing that Jesus has risen, and he has risen indeed. We do not know why Mark's gospel ends so abruptly here at verse 8. So, for those of you who obviously have maybe more an up-to-date Bible, you will see that from verse 9 right through to 20 that it is bracketed and seen as this is not um, believed to be written by John Mark. Again, its structure is different and earlier manuscripts do not have this and it's only later manuscripts that actually have this. And so, you know, I know that sometimes we can have a bit of a bee in our bonnet about all that stuff, but most of the experts agree that um, syntactically, when you look at that way it's written, it says that they don't know, it doesn't match what we have there. And to that extent, we need not disagree with them. We have most of the Gospel of Mark and we know most of what he had to tell us. It's just at the end of the day, we don't know how he was going to land this plane. So many people try to argue that this is kind of like a, a modern cliffhanger, that the women kind of come and they're told to go out there, but they're so terrified to tell everybody that all of a sudden now, where if this was, where this was now told as an oral gospel, we will now be like going, where do we go from here? And maybe that was the point, was that you now turned around and they'll say, well, what do you believe? Maybe. But again, most people believe that this is too modern, even for us, to have a, a cliffhanger ending. 
like some of these modern movies we watch where, you know, where it's like you go away and go, oh, I wonder what happened. I, oh, I wonder what that means. And we start to look for clues elsewhere. But the reality is, is that Mark has quite clearly painted the truth of his gospel. If the Mount of Transfiguration hasn't convinced you, then all the other evidence isn't going to really do much for you. The reality is, is that he really is the Son of God. He really is coming in glory. Most people don't buy that this is a kind of a modern cliffhanger ending, but kind of in an ancient context. We don't know whether Mark, John Mark passed away as a possibility, or whether that part of the scripture was just lost. We don't know. And we can only speculate, and that's best. And I will not choose to speculate what is true. I will just say that I think it's, it's worth considering that verses 9 to 20 was not written by John Mark. Let's explore it anyway, because again, um, I think it's helpful. Because to some extent, it has been part of our tradition for a number of centuries now. So why um, dispense with it? when it, has all, it's, it is actually here and it's in our Bibles now. So verses 9 to 11. It would appear that here is possibly first-hand testimony of how the testimony of women, you know, so we see this non-belief by the, by the disciples themselves, even as the women come, that this is kind of first-hand. Maybe whoever wrote this, hopefully if it was written reasonably early, they would have had a note to say, well, look, even the disciples wouldn't believe a woman. Yet what they're saying is true. So the fact that the Gospels, in a very un unlikely way, would rely on the testimony of women always helps us in our arguments of saying, well, look, if these guys understood the, you know, who understood the ancient context were trying to dupe us, they would have come up with better excuses than what they have now. And they didn't. Because in a sense, they're telling it as it actually happened. The next section, Jesus appears to two disciples in verses 12 to 13, seem to reflect the events in Luke 24, 13 to 15, the road to Emmaus. So that could have possibly been a source. We know that obviously Matthew and Luke and Mark are what they call synoptic gospels. In other words, they seem to be taken from the same source. They seem to be coming from a particular source at which they, they all have in common, but obviously they all jiggle things around and, 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 as it were, become different. But to here it seems that there's a slight allusion to, to Luke's gospel and what he records there about what happens on the road to Emmaus. And likewise also in the next section, in, in 14 to 20, where at least verse 14 seems to reflect when Jesus now comes in, when they're reclining at table, where he meets the disciples and rebukes them for their unbelief. Again, where they wouldn't believe the, that which was told, said to them by the women. Now Jesus himself comes along and he says, actually it is true. And he harshly handles them because, like I said, he has been telling them this truth for them for such a long period of time. And then they go out, go and get involved. Go and do the work of the ministry. 
This is not time to sleep and slumber. Get on with it. Let's look at application. I've been giving you little snippets of application already, but again, in terms of land in our series. So Mark's presentation of Jesus is one of a servant. Let me speak about that servant aspect first, you know. He did not shy away from being amongst the people and shepherding them like Ezekiel prophesied. I believe that so much of what Mark is doing is is highlighting how Jesus fulfills that messianic call. In particular, again, we can go to so many scriptures here about how Jesus fulfills the servant role in which he prophesied to the ancient Israelites. But in, in particular, I want us to turn our attention to Ezekiel 34, verses 11 to 12. And I'll just read that for you here. For thus says the Lord of God, the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep they have been scat- that have been scattered. So will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And how does he do this? He feeds them, doesn't he? Quite literally, miraculously. He heals them. He delivers them from demons and and, 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 and evil spirits. And he teaches them. So he becomes that servant who the scriptures had prophesied God will manifest himself as. He's also saviour. Israel had known many saviors in its history, but they could only deliver them from the mortal dangers. Jesus is unique because he saves his people from our spiritual danger. Jesus saves the soul and not just the flesh. Ezekiel, again, I turn to in 36 and verses 25 to 27, it says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Also, Jeremiah 31, 30, um, 31 to 34 also tells us this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and bringing them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, for the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. 
for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. You know, it's quite interesting, isn't it, how he contrasts the, the old covenant with that, the exodus and how he brought them out of Israel. It's like he said, you know, the problem with the exodus was, was not that Jesus obviously done a great, you know, there was a great miracle of bringing the people out and humbling the whole power, but the reality is that there was a, there was a physical salvation there. They were delivered from slavery. They were delivered from their bondage. But as we know, as they got into the wilderness, their hearts were still in Egypt. And that's what was being addressed, is that, is that that new covenant will address the issues of the heart. The heart that, that wanders astray, that heart that doesn't appreciate being saved. Many of those Egyptians looked back at their life that they had left behind and looked at their life in the wilderness going towards the promised land and couldn't see the benefits of it. So often the Lord has, has taken us out of a difficult situation and, as it were, saved us and we can't appreciate it unless our hearts start to see more clearly as to what he has done and how great that salvation is. I think Mark also demonstrates to us that he came not only to get us out of our mortal danger, but out of our spiritual danger as well. We see this in Jesus casting out demons and going to the marginalized sinners who were the outcast. When they meet Jesus, their lives are turned around so that their righteousness exceeds that of the religious elite. So we see that there is that, 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 that those people who we thought were, were going to be far behind, the, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, these guys are exceeding the religious elite because, in a sense, this is the fulfillment of that promise. Jesus was a savior to the utmost. He now took you beyond yourself and brought you to a place which even the very pious, quote-unquote, people of those days couldn't get to. He was now giving people a heart to follow him and not just taking them out of their situations. He was, he was reviving them spiritually. And finally, Son of God. Jesus' position in salvation history is so unique that he is unlike any other. He's not a mere representative of God, but the incarnation of him in the flesh. And I think, again, let me read from Daniel 7, 13b to 14. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a, a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days. He was presented before him, he, and, he, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." Daniel 7, 13b to 14. And again, we saw that fulfillment, which I believe, again, the Mount of Transfiguration, where he said, you will see the Son of Man coming in glory. And, and immediately after that, we see how he, he brings three his disciples um, up the mountain. And we see that picture of the, the, the transformed glory. They see the glory of, they see that preview of who Jesus really is. He, he, as it were, he takes off that costume like Superman. He, you know, he, he takes off his Clark Kent persona. And all of a sudden, you see um, as it were, the reality, the supernatural Christ behind the man. He was the Son of God and gave evidence that he was. 
What does this mean for us? Does Jesus meet our true needs? I believe he does. This summer you may go away with a good book tucked away to read whilst basking in the sun. Maybe it will even be a biography of some interesting person that may cause you to change the way you think or do something. But the Gospel of Mark is not like any other book that you read and change some minor aspects of your life. He has announced to us all that Jesus has changed the world forever. And if we are blessed to be able to be made aware of this, then we will be wise to change the way we live our lives. To live in him. I love the way that the, the writer of Hebrews puts this. In Hebrews 1, 1 to 3, he says this, reading from the New King James Version, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, whom also he made the from whom also he made the worlds, who be in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by him himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus has marked the time. And not merely by creating B.C. and A.D. He has marked time in a way that strikingly, if you notice, if you notice from Hebrews 1, that we are now living in the last days. Jesus' death and resurrection now marks the ticking down of our time. We are in the last days, and this is why the Gospel of Mark should transform us. There is no salvation outside of Christ. For those of you, of us, who may be listening, who have not made that. And maybe it's becoming clearer to you today that maybe in the madness of this world that, yeah, actually, I may save my life. I may have avoided COVID. I may have avoided any other kind of major illness that have come, but I realize that ultimately my soul has not been saved. Maybe you are aware that your need goes beyond the flesh. Maybe you have more than enough to eat, but again, not happy. Maybe you have accomplished everything you can accomplish in your own strength and your own ingenuity, but you suddenly realize it's not enough. I need a savior that goes beyond the saviors that we have marked out in this world and in our culture. I need real success. I need a real savior. And maybe, again, this Gospel of Mark will help you to see why Jesus is unlike any other. And that he is the only way. Amen. Father, we are so grateful for your word. We are thankful for this series and how, again, you've taken us through this time. Again, we thank you for the uniqueness of who Jesus is. 
savior, you know, a servant, Lord God, eh? one who rolled up his sleeves and lived amongst us, denied himself um, the ability to kind of um, not go through the full human experience, but, you know, I will suffer as my people suffer. I will save them. I will not spare myself, Lord. And again, maybe we need to understand how we need also. Not because, again, we are saving anybody, no, but, Lord, because we want to be like you. We might spare ourselves and, uh, and, and say, no, actually, I want, I want, I want to share in the servant, the servant heart of Christ. And, again, we know that he recommended it and, 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 <laughs> and said, this is how my disciples should be. So help us to take on that servant heart. Lord, you're also the saviour. And Lord, you're a saviour like none other. You have saved us to our very soul. You've not a saviour like David was a saviour, Lord, where the enemies of Israel were defeated, but yet, Lord, our hearts were unchanged, Lord God. You came in and went in for the full work there, Lord God. You, you held back, as it were, those forces there, Lord, that would want to come in and permeate our hearts and, 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 and make us not appreciate the salvation in which you've given us. But, Lord, you, you come in and you give us your spirit so that we, Lord God, can, can know that we, have maintained, we are maintained in your salvation because of who you are because of the work that Christ has done. Lord, your eternal source sustains us. It's not our energy. Our, you're not relying on our battery to keep that going. And we're thankful for that. And Lord, we thank you that you are the Son of God in Jesus Christ, that we have that Savior. We have that sure hope there, Lord God, that this didn't come as through some representative. And even as the book of Hebrews will elaborate, this wasn't done through some angel. This wasn't some work you assigned to somebody, Lord God, outside of yourself. You actually put yourself in for the job. Our representative is nothing but you, Lord. And so that's why we know this work is guaranteed, because the Son of God has done it. And as the Gospels remind us, Lord God, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Because, Lord, there is no higher authority to appeal to. There's no Mary to appeal to, there, God. It's just you. And when you have saved us, you have saved us, Lord. So thank you for this, Lord. May it bless us and continue to enrich us, there, God, and be something that we, we, we meditate on about what it means to now have you as our Savior and to be living in these last days with that knowledge. May we go out, Lord, as the commission says, and spread that joy, spread that news, dear Lord God, to all those who do not know you yet. May they come to that saving knowledge of you as well. Maybe through something, a work that you might do for us, dear Lord God. But help us to go forward, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.